Okay, everybody, if you've got a Bible, why don't you open it to Acts chapter 11. If you're going to use a pew Bible, it would be page 1675. And I'm going to read the text about halfway into the sermon because we actually read it yesterday, or yesterday, last week Lloyd read it, and it was part of his sermon, but I want to circle back around to it this week for a couple of reasons that will become evident hopefully very soon. One of the things that is kind of a truism of human life is we kind of naturally play to the level of our competition or our community. So let me give you a couple examples of this. When I was in college, I went and played a, a golf game with a guy named Rob Tullidge. He was sort of, he was on the junior Olympic volleyball team. He was like a consummate athlete. We played a lot of um, frisbee golf together and flag football. And um, we went and played golf and he was, he'd played a good bit. He was decent at it and I had played like one time. And so I could, I could hardly even hit the ball. And it was just kind of similar to now. And so we went and we got to like the ninth hole and I looked at the scorecard and I was only down by three strokes. And I was like, Rob, you're kind of terrible. And he looked at me and he said, it's because you're kind of terrible. Because he was playing to my level. There was no urgency. I was playing basketball last week on, on, on a Tuesday, or I think it was Friday, and the team I was playing against, we only played 25, and the other team I was playing against turned over the ball like eight times. And if you know anything about basketball, if you're playing at 25 and you turn the ball over eight times, you should lose, right? And instead, what happened was my team didn't really have much of a sense of urgency, and so they were turning the ball over, and then they beat us. Because we kind of played the level of the competition. Parents who have, you know, kids who are like preteen later, we have a preteen now, and it's becoming incrementally more important to us who she's hanging around with, who her friends are, how much time she's spending with them. Because um, parents are always concerned about their kids having friends who are, say it with me, a good influence, right? But what does that mean? It essentially means we know that people play to the level of competition or community around them. It's a universal and natural human reality. And you see, one of the fears that people tend to have about life, one of the reasons why um, so many people so vacuously seek fame is because people are actually terrified about living an ordinary life. But that's actually not the true danger. We think it is, but it's not. Because everybody lives an ordinary life. Like even the famous people, they still go to sleep, they wake up. I mean, some of them drink, drink scotch instead of orange juice, but it, it's still like, it's a number of things that happen over the course of a day. You know, statesmen still have to labor over speeches and read newspapers and work out thinking. And everybody basically lives with the same component. Everybody lives an ordinary life. Just pe some people are on, on media more, which is some weird creation of monstrosity that we've made. You're gonna live an ordinary life. That's the only kind of life there is. The, the real danger, the true danger, is that you will actually play to the community and competition that you're in. The true danger is that the true disappointment of the ordinary life is how ordinarily we live it. That's the real danger. Nobody really despises a person that lived an ordinary life and lived it beautifully. What we, but we do despise people who are famous and live with idiocy. Because even in our rebellion against God's truthfulness, we still recognize that it is more the beauty of how you live the life that you have that matters than whether or not it would classify as ordinary or special. Now, the reason why I think that's relevant 
to today is that this passage is about a church in a place called Antioch or Syrian Antioch. And the church in Syrian Antioch, which we hear about in this chapter, and that we hear a lot more about in chapter 13, which we'll cover in a couple of weeks, is actually there's this church, it's this enormously extraordinary church. It's one of the most, it's maybe the most extraordinary church in the book of Acts, in the whole first couple centuries of the church. It's amazing what happens in this church and what it accomplishes. And then yet at the same time, when compared to like the other major church, the church in Jerusalem, it's kind of ordinary. What I mean by that is that when you look at the church, especially in this passage, you can see it's like, it's incredible. There's three references to how many people they reach. Like, it's very clear. It's this very big church. They reach tons of people. Many hundreds, maybe thousands. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a pile of folks, right? It's the first truly multi-mega church that there is. I mean, this church actually is not only a lot of people, but there's people from all kinds of nations and tongues and ethnicities and languages. I mean, it's a, it's a truly, like, crazy little crew of folks. In fact, it's one of the reasons why it says in the text that um, the disciples, that is the follower of Jesus, were called Christians first to Antioch, because you couldn't really call them anything else. They, they weren't a sect of the Jews anymore. They were like this multicultural group that the only thing that was similar to them, other than that they were humans— and that they ate food and slept was that they followed the risen Christ, and so you just call them Christists or Christians. And it's through the church in Antioch that the most consequential movement in human history gets launched in its intercontinental reality. Like, it, the, the strategicness of what this church—I mean, this, this church— in God's providence, determine the language you speak today, determine the basic things you understand about reality, the, the growing of science. I mean, it's all kinds of things flowed out of the movement that this church threw intercontinental in this chapter. It's extraordinary, right? And yet, when you compare it to the church in Jerusalem, it's kind of weird how ordinary it is. In the first chapters of Acts, the church in Jerusalem gets launched by miracles and apostles, right? Like the 12 awesome leaders, well, they lost one. So the 11 awesome leaders that Jesus pulled together, his three top guys, John, James, and Peter, they are ready to go. They're full of the Holy Spirit. God does amazing miracles. And the whole first several chapters of Acts is miracle, sermon by an awesome apostle. Miracle, sermon by an awesome apostle. Miracle, sermon by an awesome apostle. And then you get to this chapter, and it's like, yeah, some people came to Antioch, and they told some folks about Jesus, and lots of people believed, and there all of a sudden was this big church, and, and you're like, where's the, where's the miracles? Where's the glitz? Where's the, where's the spiritual Rolls Royce in this equation? Like, how, like, what is going on? It's so, it's like reading a totally different book about a totally different movement. It's so stinking ordinary, right? So, uh, there's a couple questions we could ask in relationship to us. Like, we could say, so how did normal people living ordinary lives become the most consequential movement in the history of the world? Like that, like that's a good question. Don't you think that's a good question? Like, how did that happen? How did normal people living ordinary lives become the most consequential movement in the history of the world? Like, that interests me. And the answer when you read this text, and you'll see it when I read it in just a minute, is the answer is God was with them. Okay, and there's a number of places in the text where it says, 
and God was with them, and God's hand was on them, and there was evidence of the grace of God. And so it's really clear that God was was creating this, and God was also with what they were doing, but there are also characteristics of what these people believed, understood, obeyed, and lived out as their identity that God supported, right? Um, you, our theology affects what we do so that God will be part of the outcome that we get to. So let me give you like a let me give you an example of this. So when I came to High Point five years ago, High Point was was doing okay. We weren't exactly financially doing that great. And that's always on the mind of somebody running an organization, doesn't matter how spiritual you are. And I talked with a couple other people, and I really felt convicted that the way we should be praying was this. God, can you help me lead the staff, be part of a group of elders, and act in such a way that you would like to bless? So that when you looked at us, you were like, I want more of that. And so that you would then pour out resources on us. Because I've read all the church growth literature on preaching on giving three times a year, right? So I've been here five years. How many times am I supposed to have been preached, preached exclusively on giving in five? That's 15 times. You know how many times I have in five years? One. And I couldn't stand giving. I got off on other things. Right? Last week at our congregational meeting, we increased our budget more than $200,000, not because we had, were spending it on more stuff, but because we just have so much money that we have to create a spending plan for it. Otherwise, we don't even know what we'll do. Right? B because my passion for this church was is that if we would just honor Jesus, if we would do what he said the right way with the right spirit, if we would seek godliness and to live out the gospel and to love the scriptures, and if we just did that, I probably wouldn't have to do that much. And people would say, I really care about this. I want more of this. And God would say, me too. And it would produce trust, and it would produce passion, and it would produce generosity. And it has, at least for now. And what this ultimately comes down to is all through this passage, what you see is a group of people that see and really understand that they're part of something bigger than themselves. That in Christ, Jesus, who's king over all things, has called them into a, a community and a life of redemption that is just way bigger than them. And so they lose, they lose their compulsion for celebrity, and they gain a passion for discipleship. You cannot be deeply and meaningfully a disciple of Jesus until you lose your passion for your own celebrity. You cannot look to Jesus while you are looking at the selfie lens on your own life phone. You just can't do it. And when you realize that the bigger thing that is Jesus is far better than the script of celebrity you could ever hope for for yourself, more truthful, more honorable, more beautiful, more deeply good, you can let go of the internal desires of pride and celebrity, and you can be a disciple, and you can live for something bigger than yourself with other people who are all living for something bigger than themselves, and then you will play in your discipleship to the level of the competition and the community around you, which means your discipleship will step up to the level of the competition of the secular city in which you live, and it will rise up to the level of the community and the church to which you belong, which could be in Madison, could be awesome. 
because there's plenty of tension. And if we raised our game and our desire to be part of God's bigger so that godliness and humility and depth of character and real discipleship were incredibly important to us, if that happened, God could create a movement here that he, his hand was with more than we've ever yet started to think about. Does that make sense? I want to look at this in a couple ways. I've got to skip a little bit because I'm trying to preach more efficiently. Um, so first, let's look at what he do in a community, and then are there ways we can bring that down more closely, personally, into a direct application to ourselves? And so the first is that if we want to understand what we'd be as a people together that lived for something bigger than ourselves, something that, based on God's own promises, we could believe would be something that he would, his hand would be with— you could say that these people act something like this, that their identity practices built ordinary greatness, right? These are people who had been through persecution. They'd been part of a great church in Jerusalem. They knew what it was like to believe in and follow Jesus. And then out of that identity, they did a bunch of things, okay? So what I want to do right now is I'm going to read this text, Acts 11, 19 through 30. And what I want you to pay attention to is practices— that they did out of their identity of belonging to Jesus that, that would classify as stuff that they did out of an identity of believing in Jesus, living out that they're part of something bigger. If you've got a pew Bible, I'm giving you permission to write in it. You put a little dot near each one, you, or you just look at me like, yep, yep, yep. But follow through, and so my list is going to have nine, right? So let me, let me read this and see if you can pick them out. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he arrived and saw that the grace of God, what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so for a whole year— Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Did you get all nine? Somebody's like, I got 13. Okay, okay, you're awesome, right? So here are the nine that I see that are evidence that people had an identity in Jesus such that they recognized they belonged and could live for something bigger than themselves. That is Jesus and the community that he creates. Okay, so one is kind of framed negatively. I don't know if—this is one of the harder ones to pick up because it makes it sound like it was going to be negative. So in verse 19, it says, um, Persecution broke out, killed travelers from Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. And then it says this, Spreading the word only among the Jews. 
right? Spreading the word only among Jews. Now that's interesting because that's meant to be framed negatively because in the next verse he's going to say, but there's other people who went beyond that. But notice that even within the prejudices and bigotries that these folks hadn't been freed from, they were still being faithful to Jesus. Right? They were. And now I know you and I live in Madison, and so we don't have any prejudices or bigotries at all. Right? Because it's, po- it's totally possible for humans not to have prejudices and bigotries, right? <laughs> no, right? But until God deals with us on those, wherever we are at this moment, we can be faithful to share the word with whoever it is we do know how to come into contact with in love. So among the Jews, they spread the gospel, and a lot of Jews got saved because a lot of Christian Jews told Jews about Jesus. And many of them believed, and that God's hand was with them, right? But also, there were some new people that crossed new lines. And on one level, we'd love to believe that these were just the really enlightened people, right? These were the Democrats. But on, but on another level, it's important to recognize that there was an experience that these people had that the other people didn't have. Right? They were Jews. They'd been part of the church at Jerusalem, but they'd also had their cultural identity formed in two places. You remember from the text? Jews from Cyprus and Cyrene. They were part of the Greco-Roman North African subculture, and there's something about this dynamic, the fact that they were from there, that they had lived in Jerusalem, and when they were pushed out of Jerusalem, they didn't go home, but they went to Antioch. There is something about that experience, something about what God did in their experience that led them to start telling Gentiles about Jesus. I don't know what it is. But here's what we do know about the people who who weren't that far in their own understanding. When those people came to church, they did accept them. Because it said many people came to faith. There, it, it, it assumes everywhere because teachers coming, that this church gathered together, that albeit that some Jews didn't tell Greeks, when these other people did and they brought them to church, they became part of the church. They, the Jews that didn't share with Greeks didn't say, whoa, you can't bring these people in here. They said, oh, that's kind of interesting. Hey, Nice face tattoo. Like, they, they just were like, okay, okay, I guess this is happening. And they didn't stand against it. And one of the things that can happen in us is that, listen, there are going to be people that you are kind of freed up to relate to well, and other people you're not. None of us relate to everybody great. Right? Because relating to people different than us usually requires a certain set of, of cultural IQ knowledge. And so you might be like, hey, I relate to people not like me. Great. And if I really asked you questions, what that would mean was there is some subset you're good with. You're good with African-Americans. You're good with, like, suburban white people. You're good with Chinese immigrant second generations. You're good with, or maybe a few, but not all of them. I mean, there's a pile of Bhutanese refugees in Madison. How good are you with them? Right? And you're like, Bhutan— do they, what, what are they, big boots? Or, like, what, I mean, some of you don't even know what I'm talking, right? right? That's okay. Because as long as when, you know, this guy over here brings his Bhutanese refugee friend here, you go, welcome, brother. Because some people are just, there are going to be new people that are going to cross new lines. Some people are just going to do it. And the critical thing is, is that we let them and we embrace the progress of what they draw, who they draw here. Even if you're kind of like, yeah, I'm really uncomfortable talking to people like that. Great. But you still hand their kid a donut while their parents aren't watching. Okay? (laughs) 
You also can see a number of things related to leadership. They received and responded to good and fitted leadership. The apostles send Barnabas, and like you say, like, why Barnabas, right? Right, he's this guy named Joseph. He's a Jew. Apparently he likes to encourage because his name means son of encouragement. But why this guy? Well, where was Barnabas from? Right? Because Acts already told us in chapter 6, I think. Joseph, also called Barnabas, was a Levite from the island of Cyprus. Get it? The Jewish guy who was part of the Jewish church in Jerusalem was of the same culture and nationality of the very people who had learned to cross the line to the Gentiles, people from Cyrene and Cyprus. So he was culturally subfitted to exactly to what this growing church was going to need, and they recognized it and they embraced it. Partly because he was well-fitted, but partly because he was a Christian leader. Like, he had, what it, he had what every church ought to demand from a Christian leader, okay? And that is what this text says. And you should believe this, even if it means you have to fire me this afternoon. Which is, it says he was a good man. Not that he could preach the paint off the walls. Not that he was cool. Not that he was young or old, depending on how old you are. It was, he was a good man. Now, of course, that's relatively speaking in Christian faith. But what it means is he had been deeply transformed by the gospel. He lived with honor and integrity, appropriate humility, and with a clarity about who he was and who everybody else was in God's sight. He was a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit. It was clear that God himself, through his spirit, was working in and flowing through this person. And he was full of faith. He believed that God could do stuff. He didn't just believe philosophically that it was reasonable to be persuaded that Jesus might be the Christ. He actually believed that Christ had been crucified and risen and could obliterate the prejudices of people around him, could tear down the stronghold of Greco-Roman secularism, and all of these are— he believed that God had the power and willingness to actually do something. He believed that people could come to Christ. He believed that bad marriages could be great marriages. He believed that kids that hated their parents in their middle 20s could learn to forgive and bring their own family back together, even though they're the younger person shouldn't have to. He believed all kinds of great people, people who just had an anger problem, could actually repent of being an idiot, except that Jesus had called them to be different and actually learn to change and be different. He believed that. And like, no church, why? Why can't, you gotta have a, you gotta have at least those. Because listen, Let's say, let's say I was really good at, I don't know, reading Greek or something, okay? I'm not that great at it. Like, who cares? That makes no difference for how we play, right? If I read Greek good, it's not going to raise your Christian game, right? Or if I speak English well. (laughs) The point is that if I am a good man— or whether I am full of the Holy Spirit and faith, that does matter. Because the level of challenge and the level of cooperation and community, we rise and fall to. We're drawn in and away from. Every Christian leader has to have that, right? Like when, when, when I inv- I've invited some people to meet, to meet Mike, Mike Beresford, our new staff member, I'm like, listen, I don't, I don't care if you like the cut of his jib. This is what you're supposed to look for. Is he a good man? Is he full of the Holy Spirit and faith? This is what you look for. When I get to the point where you look at me and you're like, 
He's not a good man. He's not full of the Holy Spirit and faith. I have to go. Do you understand? You, we have to believe. And so this church looked for that, recognized it. And when they saw it in Barnabas, they responded to it. They listened to him. They, and he brought very clear teaching that they may or may not want to hear. One, for the Jewish people that may not have thought Greeks should be hearing the gospel, he said, no, the first thing we need to do is celebrate. He, re- he rejoiced at the grace of God, and he made them rejoice at the grace of God as God was creating this messy intercultural, inter- interlinguistic thing that was probably kind of weird. He was like, this is amazing what God is doing. Aren't you happy about it? You should, you're angry? You should be happy about it. You should be happy about this, right? Sometimes one of the most infuriating things in human experience is when you are grumpy and somebody tells you you need to be happy. I've experienced that. (laughs) Right? He also said, listen, it is so great that you've come to faith. It's so great you believe in Jesus. We've come to faith. This is great. Now listen, it's not going to be a cakewalk. Right? What does it say that he encouraged them about? Right? It says, and then he got in their face and said, you need to make it to the end. We need to persevere. You need to Keep your heart focused on Jesus. You need to follow him, right? He, he gives a message of the importance of persevering, which nobody wants to hear. We want to believe that it's going to be a cakewalk. We're already in. Everything's good. That's it. It's nothing but like hot air balloons and tequila or something. I don't know. Ice cream, I should have said instead of tequila. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Do you know what I'm saying? He, he said, that's what, that was his focus. And then, one of the other things you see in this text is a very long-term substantive ministry of teaching. Right? Like, he clearly is like preaching and preaching and preaching and teaching and instructing and preaching and instructing and teaching. And these people are like, yes, yes, more. They're attending to it. They want more of it, such that as the church grows and grows and grows, as he's teaching them, he goes and finds Saul, right? Like, it doesn't say he and Saul were pen pals. Like, he didn't even know where Saul was, right? He was like, oh yeah, there's that guy I met in Jerusalem. And God said he was going to be his instrument to lead the Gentiles to him. I really need somebody. I'm going to go find him. So it says he went to Tarsus not to get Saul, but to look for his sorry behind. He didn't even know where he was. He just kind of like shows up in Tarsus. Like, so do you know some like really abrasive guy that's like more educated than possible, like his own good? And like, they're like, oh yeah, Saul. He, he like eats lunch over there. Right? And then he brings him back. And at that point, what you see is that the church doesn't split into two churches because some people like Barnabas' sermons and some people like Saul's sermons. That's not the result. The result is a full embracing in the church of all of the voices God has brought into this situation and a movement away from the failure of growing churches with single voices, which is a movement towards a worshiping, like a celebrity, right? If, if, if people are like, no, we like Barnabas, what that shows is they like Barnabas, That means they're moving towards celebrity and away from discipleship. The fact that if if they say, I like Barnabas, what that means is I like the way he cooks. I like the way he cooks up the gospel and expresses it. Great. Who cares? Doesn't matter. Right? What matters is, is the gospel being taught faithfully in a way that is instructive and helpful for our discipleship from somebody who is good, full of the Holy Spirit, and full of faith? 
It's one of the reasons why I've been committed since the very beginning I came to High Point Church to create a multiple teacher model as soon as functionally possible at High Point. Not because, not because I want to preach less. I like preaching. It's kind of my writing and talking. It's kind of the only thing I can do, you know? And so it's not like I really want that, but it's, I know how important it is. I know how important it is, and I know how fragile not only my life is, but also my godliness. Because I can stand in front of you today, and I can pass a bunch of accountability questions, but I know that could be false tomorrow. And I hope that part of that, knowing that about me, will create the vigilance that will keep me till the end. But I've known a lot of people, a lot of Christian leaders that have just implode, and I want to make sure that this whole thing is set up to work without me. Not because I'm looking for some other church. I don't look for other churches. I'm probably going to be stuck here till I die. I saw this woman at a, at a triathlon this last weekend. I'm going to talk about it a little bit later. And she was wearing this gray shirt with, with a picture of Wisconsin. And in the middle of it, it said, home. And I, I, I saw the shirt and I was like, huh. <laughs> and so I was like, I'm going to buy that shirt because I need to wear it like four days a week until I'm, I'm like, I really feel it. You know what I mean? <laughs> But, I mean, since the very beginning, I've said this is a teaching church. Every staff member that comes on our staff full-time is, a, is faculty. Um, we want to create as many internships as possible. We want young people and middle, people switching switch careers and people that just want to learn how to do ministry to have enormous opportunities to screw up and try things and to grow in their capacity for leadership so that then they can go other places and they can do ministry. Right? In this passage, you can see as we, as we come through this is not only did they receive other leadership voices, they benefited from the ministries of outside people when Agabus and these other prophets came, and they were like, awesome! Encourage us, help us, that's great. And then, on number eight, they gave their best. So think about this. When the church really became part of something bigger and decided to give financially to the poor, what did they do? How did they get the money to Jerusalem? They sent it with— this is participatory— Barnabas and Saul, right? Now, that's not a quick trip. It's 400 miles. Like, they're going to be gone a while. I mean, it'd be a little bit like this. We have a partnership, developmental partnership in the Dominican Republic. It'd be a little like this. If um, you came to church one morning, and you didn't see Lloyd or I anywhere, and one of the elders got up and said, listen, we've got this thing in the Dominican Republic. We really wanted to encourage them, so we just sent Lloyd and Nick down there for nine months. They'll be back, probably. That's what it would be like. Can you imagine us doing that? Getting like $160,000 together and sending Lloyd and I off to the Dominican Republic for nine months. Because that's what they did. They flat out did that in the first year of their church's life. And you know what happened? Here's what happened. You flip over to chapter 13 and you read the first paragraph and there's five or six other leaders that have emerged. How do you think that happened? It probably happened when the big guns were gone and somebody had to step up and there was some real opportunity for somebody to do something. That's how leaders cut their teeth. That's how it happens. People don't learn to preach without preaching. People don't learn to lead small groups without leading small groups. Like, you're like, well, you know, Nick, what about— yeah, You might not even like your small group leader, but listen, people learn to lead small groups by leading small groups. You just need to tell them they're kind of terrible at it, and then maybe they'll work on it. You'll be like, I'll be here next week, but you're pretty terrible at this. And you give them a big hug. You know? That's how people get better. I remember when I was in seminary, one of the, 
one of the statistics I heard about small group leadership is that the average small group leader that's effective has emptied out three small groups in their training process. Right? So like they start, there's like 20 people in it, and it like dwindles down to three, and you're like, okay, we're done. And then they delete another one, same thing happens. Then they lead another one, same thing happens. And after that, they finally figure out how to lead small groups. It's kind of costly, but that's just— That's how people learn. So there's all these things, and one of the questions that, that I asked the staff this week, we went through this, I said, are there any of these that are true then but not now? True in Antioch but not here? See, when I look at these, those all look transferable to me. There's no interpretive distance. Those are all the kinds of things that people who believe in Jesus belong to him and believe they're part of his something bigger. Those are all perfectly natural to that mindset and perfectly unnatural to a mindset more interested in celebrity than discipleship. So, how do we bring this home, right? You're like, okay, um, oh, let me just do one quick minute on this because some of you know that um, part of our, the model of how we do ministry is, is based around connect, grow, serve, right? And I just want you to show that it, it kind of lines up with this. And there's some of these things that um, Lisa made before she left about our mission and how we do stuff that you can get at the visitor thing on the way out. I'd really encourage you, if you don't have one of these, to grab one and put it in your Bible because it will explain a lot about why we do the things we do here at High Point. But if you look at this list that we just looked at, it really kind of focused it. You can see how it goes around connect, grow, serve. Connect, Connecting people with God and others. The first two verses are all about how people went out and led people to Jesus and brought them together in the family of the local church. The next few verses focuses on God sending them teachers and gathering Saul and this year-long period of instruction and growth and development. They were very focused on growth. And then the passage ends with them giving money to the poor, trying to help other people, right? And sending their best for the good of others, right? Connect, grow, serve. Connect with God and others. Understand the gospel. Know the Bible. Love the city and reach, serve the city and reach the world. It's all right there. And I didn't get this from that passage. It just happens to be everywhere in the Bible. And so a church that knows it's part of something bigger, I think, commits itself to these, these three things in those six ways. Right? So if you ask the question then, though, but what about, like, for me, like, but my personal application, what does this mean for me? Then the point is, is actually the exact, exact same. That identity practices build ordinary greatness. When a church has its identity in Jesus and does the practices related to that, it builds greatness in the church because God's hand is with it and blesses it. But if you want to live in ordinary greatness— you have to do those same practices. Those are the things that God has called us to do and wants us to do in our part of discipleship, not celebrity. So what's true for you is that identity practices build ordinary greatness in you. So I apply it this way. If you're like, what does this mean for me? My, the first thing is, are you even listening? Like the whole— it's not about you, right? The whole, the whole thing is based in people who understand that they're part of something bigger. The first practice is to do whatever you need to do to remember as often as you need to remember that you're part of something bigger. One of the, to the two perhaps most important ways of doing that is one, coming to worship and being part of a local church. 
where you come and you declare that God is God and you aren't. One of the things I loved about the set this morning when I was part of it first hour, because I can only do it with my voice one time, was I felt small in the good way when I was done. I felt small in the good way. I felt God in the, was big in the good way. And it placed me. That's what worship does. And then the other is actually to have what some people call a quiet time or devotionals that is kind of daily getting a Bible and getting it out and reading a little bit of it and praying and remembering what the heck you are. And learning a little bit. Second thing is, the thing that people just naturally did individually in this passage is they shared Jesus. And I know that some of you, especially the introverts, are going to be like, whoa there, tiger. Like, I know where this is going. I'm not saying that you've got to lead like 46 people to Jesus. I'm, that's not what, I'm what I'm saying is, is that these people understood who they were as people regenerate, redeemed by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, by the, indwelled by the power of the Holy Spirit, called to a new identity, understanding again what they were made and created to do under the creation mandate and the redemption calling. They, they got it in such a way as that they just kind of, they just sort of shared Jesus. It wasn't like, it wasn't technical. It was, oh, let me tell you something. And they had faith. They actually believed that people, that God would save people, that God would do the work that God would do the heavy lifting. People are persuaded of things in kind of strange ways. Like when you saw the video on the baptisms, right? Like one guy was like, was like, I was in this thing, and then the Spirit of God just kind of came on me. I could just feel his presence, and it persuaded me. And, the other, and, then, um, and then the very next guy was like, yeah, so I just read the Bible, and I kind of became persuaded that Jesus was God and stuff, and like I just read it, and there, I just believed it. And you're like, that's very different ways of being persuaded. Welcome to the human race, right? And so the most natural thing that's going to happen if we know who we are is we're going to naturally um, want to enter into relationships where we can share Jesus and we're going to want to share Jesus in the relationships that we have. And then the last thing that's really evident from this text is a really, a really different than normal attitude towards leaders, spiritual leaders. Um... The, the Bible is very clear about the accountability that spiritual leaders have before God and should have in the church. One of the reasons we are a congregational church is because the, the deposing of a pastor at our church we can do right here in this church with our congregation. We don't need a bishop or a whatever. We don't need Jesus to, like, strike me down literally. Like, we don't need a lightning bolt. We can depose someone who should be held accountable in the ministry. But what it also says in lots of places, Paul talks about being a father to someone. and they, they should look upon him as a son looks to a good father. That there's this relationship of closeness and desire and hope and receiving and impartation that is related to the spiritual leaders in their life. And so a church that, it, that has any prayer of God making into a movement, one that God's hand is with, will have an internal hunger for the things of God and therefore have an internal desire to be taught well about the things of God by whoever will do it and do it faithfully, which is different than hero worship, right? And I think one of the things that distinguishes a church that God is making a movement out of, a person that really is recognizing that they're part of something bigger, is their attitude towards those who would teach them 
and their attending to those things in the local church and in their personal lives. Does that make sense? Let me um, end with two things I think that are important. If it is normally true for human beings that we play up to the level of competition in community, and if the level of competition in community in the, in the city in which we live is pretty non-Christian, that will have a spiritually depressing effect to what we're inspired and lifted to, which means what we need in our life is an alternate normal. We need another place where we end up that sets the bar up here. Doesn't kick us in the teeth if we don't make it, but that plays at this level. And so without any condemnation, we're drawn to it, right? If people in this church weren't judgmental at all, in fact, we didn't even really correct people. I don't think that's good, but let's just say we were just like all positive extroverts, and we're all just like, you're fantastic. No, you're fantastic, right? All the time. But every person was really serious about godliness. They really wanted to see the areas in their life that were just terrible, just really changed, and they were willing to submit themselves to Jesus and how God would change them through the power of his Holy Spirit and how they could find a new identity in Christ and really be godly. People would just come in here and their game would just start to come up. It just it would just sort of start to happen. It's, just, it's normal. They'd be like, oh, I see. I see it. And they just start playing up. Um, I told you a story about about playing golf with Rob Tullidge that I, I brought him down. Basically, whenever I play golf with anybody, I bring him down. Um, but um, eight years ago today, um, Alexis and my son Jude was born. He's our third child, and he was born with a congenital birth defect called arthrogryposis. We called him the little C because his spinal curvature was so bad, his heels almost touched the back of his head. And the first doctor we took him to at the University of Florida um, Athletic Clinic um, and Surgery Center said, uh, and this is the only label that actually frustrates me and gets me a little choked up. He said, he said yep, he's going to be a sitter. He spent about 30 seconds with my son. He's going to be a sitter, meaning he'll never stand, he'll never walk, he'll sit. Right? He'll be in a wheelchair. And most kids with arthrogryposis at his level, that happens to a lot of them because they don't get a lot of care. They end up being put up for adoption, they end up in the foster system, they don't get the kind of care that they need, and they do end up in wheelchairs, and they don't walk. Um, and so my wife fired him, and we went to a different doctor. And, um, and so, you know, 15 foot surgeries, a major hip surgery done here at UW Children's, um, and a bunch of surgeries later, um, you know, here we are today. But when he turned two, the last time his birthday was on a Sunday, I was at Lynn Haven Methodist, and I decided to play a dirty trick on the men to make them cry in church. And I had, because I'd, I'd shared about Jude's problems when he was still in the womb, five, five months. And so we, we'd like really publicly walked through this. And so I had my wife bring him up, and he walked to me on stage. And like right when he got to me, he kind of fell forward, and everybody was like, Ugh. and the women were like, ah, and the guys were like, oh, I'm sorry, I hate you. And they're like, tears streaming like, right. And um, so yesterday, um, Jude did the middle distance kids triathlon, okay? He swam 50 meters, he got out, rode his bike for two miles, and then he ran a half mile to finish. And that was with like, you know, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. Nancy Miller cried and I didn't. I, I have to tell you, I'm a terrible person. You're crying. Yeah. You're welcome. Um, 
it feels good to cry. Uh, so, so, you know, what, what's, and here's the thing. I don't know where Jude would be today if we had put him in a home with 50 other kids with arthrogryposis. I don't know. But what I do know is we didn't beat him up for his deficiencies. But he lived in a house of ambulant athletic people that did stuff. And so he wanted to do that stuff and he wanted to get up. And so we cared for him. We did all the medical care to try to help him increase his capabilities. But there was a game he was always trying to play to because of who his family was and where he went to school and all those things. So that yeah, it bothers him he can't play football, and it bothers him he can't do some of those things. But two years ago, he hiked three miles with a thousand feet of elevation at Yellowstone with a backpack on. He just did a triathlon because his game is being raised by the people around him. Does that make sense? And you see, we don't have to be judgmental to help people become godly. On one level, we have to be people ready to do the heavy hospital work of the surgeries necessary to help people overcome the things that make it so hard for them to obey and trust Jesus in lots of ways. And yet, through our own commitment, not in self-righteousness, but in desire to really actually be godly, we can raise each other's games. We can inspire each other to, to... to be serious about it, to really want to be as got to be extraordinary in the ordinary lives that we live because we really believe we're part of something bigger because Jesus is that bigger. And he brings us together into a sub-movement that is designed to be under his hand so that we can live an extraordinary way in our city together and be a movement for his name. And so individually, we all raise each other's games without having to be mean or judgmental or self-righteous, but in all humility to lift each other up. And in doing so, drawing people, both people that are like us that we would naturally share Christ with, and people that some people will be able to cross over and bring in people who are totally different than the kind of people we see right now. The greatest tragedy of the ordinary life is not that it's ordinary. The greatest tragedy is that we live it ordinarily. But the real extraordinary life is ordinary in its structures but it's extraordinary in the life of the person who actually believes they're part of something bigger, that Jesus is that bigger, and they join with the people who believe that too so that God's hand can be with them and so God can do great things through them. And I I don't know if God's going to make us an intercontinental ballistic whatever, but I do believe that the kinds of things we've seen over the last five years— like, to me, I mean, I'm super glad for the things that God has done in lots of people's lives. What I'm glad for is the stories, the individual people who've seen so much happen in their lives, and that really inspires me. But, like, I mean, do you really think we've experienced the power of God like God has power? I don't think so. I think that God is doing something in us, and I believe that if we will, if we will be this kind of people together, if we will accept that kind of call individually— I think that the sort of things that God will do through you personally 
in the actions of your life and in the godliness that he creates in you and what he will do with us together as a family of believers and what he'll do in all the places we end up getting sent out from here. I just don't think they'll be ordinary at all. Let's pray. Father, we know that it's a natural thing to be drawn into the level that's around us. And wherever we are, whatever we do, we know that that that's just human, and yet we don't want the tragedy of our lives to be how ordinarily we lived it. We want, in whatever you called us to, and whatever the providences of our life are, we, we want to we live beautifully. We want to live greatly. And we pray that you'd help us individually and together recognize that we're meant to be part of something bigger both in the biggest sense of being part of what Jesus is doing, the risen Savior King, and also the concrete version in the local church that you're creating, in our shared, related, physical, ordinary lives together. Would you help us to live out the practices of an identity that is centered in you to create the kind of ordinary greatness that we could experience? Would you give us leadership that would be like Barnabas and Saul? And would you give us hearts to respond like that so that the nourishment of receiving what you have to teach us would be something that we're, at, we're always at rapt attention for and that comes through with, with faithfulness, even when it's not coming through with slickness? And would you make us a movement that your hand is with and that people in many places rejoice over what they say the grace of God is doing in those people in that city. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.